Hello, 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 and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. It's Monday. And this week, I'm on my own. We are increasingly busy, Chris and I, and this week, the way the dice fell meant I'm doing this episode on my own. But that's fine, because this week's interview is by Chris, and it's with Kesia Ali on the subject of sexual ethics and Islam. Quite controversial, but that's good. We like that here. So I'll pass over to Chris, who will tell you a little bit more about the interview. Alongside the problematic dominant caricature of Islam as a violent religion, there's perhaps no issue so problematic in contemporary Western discourse on Islam than discussions surrounding sexuality and gender. Western stereotypes of the downtrodden Muslim woman are often countered by claims of Islamic scholars that women are more liberated, respected and secure within Islam than in other religions or in the secular West. Regular listeners to the Religious Studies Project will be unsurprised to learn that there's a lot more going on below the surface of these dominant discourses. Why are we even having this discussion about sexual ethics and Islam? How might one begin to study such a vast and problematic topic? What are some of the prescient issues that recur in this contested field? And what is the broader significance of this discussion for religious studies in general? To discuss these issues and more, I'm joined today by Keisha Ali, who is Professor of Religion at Boston University. Professor Ali is a scholar of religion, gender and ethics, whose work focuses mostly on the Muslim tradition with an emphasis on law and biography. She's currently Status Committee Director at the AAR and is a past president of the Society for the Study of Muslim Ethics. Her publication list is impressive and features five monographs, including The Lives of Muhammad, Marriage and Slavery in Early Islam, and most relevant to today's interview, Sexual Ethics and Islam, Feminist Reflections on Quran, Hadith and Jurisprudence, originally published in 2006 with an expanded and revised edition published in 2016. So first off, Professor Ali, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you for having me. And thanks for joining us here in Edinburgh in the Prince Alwaleed bin bin Talal's Centre for the Study of Islam in the Contemporary World. That's a mouthful, um, isn't it? It is a mouthful, <laughs> um, but they're graciously hosting us today. And we'll be sure to shout out about your lecture that you're doing this evening um, when we publish this podcast. Um, so first off, Islam, sexual ethics. Why are we even having this discussion? Yeah, it's sort of impossible not to be having the discussion, really. Um, I think the challenge is to find ways to have it that are productive and mm. that don't just um, inadvertently reinforce the power of certain dominant discourses by contesting them, as if that's the only thing we do. Um, look, the question of gendered roles and rights and obligations is one that has been present since, as near as we can tell, um, the first Muslim community, right? Scripture records specific questions about women's and men's respective roles, relationship to each other, relationship to religious obligations, relationship to God, etc. Um, certainly accounts of the Prophet's normative community are replete with gendered descriptions and contestations. Mm. Now, obviously, to what extent these reflect a 7th century community and to what extent they reflect 
8th, 9th, 10th century reflections on that community and attempts to ascribe certain later normative uh, patterns onto that community. That's a subject of debate among historians of early Islam. But for Muslims, pious Muslims, lay folk, scholars, you know, these are the stories out of which accounts of virtuous ethical life are made. And so Muslims certainly have been having internal conversations and debates about gender norms since quite early on. Now, why are we having this conversation? Um, Sexuality is always one of the things that comes up when someone wants to insult someone else, Mm. right? Um, When one community uh, or members of a community are looking for a way to stigmatize, oppose, define others, sexuality is very frequently something that gets um, pressed into service, Mm. whether that's Protestants saying bad things about Catholics, Catholics saying bad things about Protestants, and Protestants saying bad things about Catholics by likening them to Muslims or the reverse, right? Sexuality frequently comes into play. Um, What we know, if if we want to just in very broad terms, generally talk about the West and Islam. And I object on principle to those categories, but I'm going to use them anyway as a kind of shorthand. We see really that in the Middle Ages and in the early modern era, um, it wasn't Muslim oppression of women that was a problem for anybody. It was Muslim lustfulness and debauchery, Mm. right? Um, And it's really in the 19th century with the advent of European colonialism in Muslim-majority societies, uh, Egypt, for instance, and also India, that Muslim men's oppressiveness towards women becomes part of um, a colonial discourse about civilization, right? Um, What's very interesting is to look at the ways that the kinds of accusations leveled against Muslims have really changed over time. So not only from wantonness to oppression, but also you'll find that today one of the things that tends to get said about Muslims is, oh, they're so intolerant of homosexuality. Mm -hmm. They're so repressive. Look how awful. Well, In the early modern era and and even into the 19th century, the claim was they're too tolerant of homosexuality. They are attached to the practice of sodomy, unlike us upright Brits usually, right? Um, and, And look how awful they are compared to how moral we are, which is basically the gist of all of this. And of course, there are Muslims uh, equally scandalized by, you know, uh, Western women's dress and uh, the ways in which women and men outside the family interact. Hmm. And that's an important uh, link there then when you mention um, the Muslim perspective, because of course, um, contemporary Muslims, whether we're talking scholars or lay people going about their lives, are having to articulate views against this dominant Western view. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think part of what's particularly challenging um, for me as a scholar and for media, for lay folk, for religious studies teachers in the classroom is how do we talk about this in a way that actually recognizes the great diversity of perspectives among Muslims? Because, you know, even that that phrase, the Muslim perspective, um, it's one that gets bandied about a lot, including by many Muslims. And, of course, um, 
part of what's interesting to me as a scholar of religion is how our claims to representing the authoritative Muslim perspective being pressed, right? What are the sources being cited? What are the extra textual authoritative norms being deployed? How much is it about where you got your degree from? How much is it about um, whether you have a, a beard? How much mm. is it about, um, you know, whether the media is calling you to speak on their programs? Um, and how much is it about the content of your ideas? Yeah, and that's something that comes up in is Aaron Hughes's Islam and the Tyranny of Authenticity. Absolutely. Um, which we, we've had him on the podcast before, and then we, he talked about something completely different. We're going to have to get him <laughs> on again for that. Um, but yes, yeah, so a very broad topic we're talking about here, sexual ethics and Islam. How does one even go about studying that? I know that you had a, your, your own particular approach. but um. So the book Sexual Ethics and Islam really has its roots in two different things mm -hmm. I was doing um, around the turn of the millennium. Um, so I did my doctoral dissertation at Duke University about marriage and divorce in 8th to 10th century Sunni Muslim jurisprudence. Uh, at the same time, from 2001 to 2003, I was working part-time for the Feminist Sexual Ethics Project at Brandeis University, which was directed by Bernadette Bruton and funded by the Ford Foundation. And so for the dissertation, which I defended in 2002, I was really looking at about a dozen early Arabic legal texts. Uh, and for the Feminist Sexual Ethics Project, I was actually engaged in putting together a series of short essays for the site aimed at lay folks, not necessarily Muslim, looking for a general orientation to the Muslim textual tradition, so Quran, prophetic tradition, to some extent exegesis, to some extent the legal tradition, um, framing particular kinds of issues, issues around female dress, issues around marriage, around divorce, around slavery, around same-sex relationships, um, but framed in a kind of general way that, that would make them accessible. And I also wanted to begin to address the ways Muslims today were talking about those topics. Mm. Um, sexual ethics and Islam really came together out of those two initiatives, because on the one hand, what I found when I was looking at the way contemporary Muslims were talking about these topics is that they were often completely disconnected and, in fact, making claims that, that really contradicted um, sometimes the positions, but far more often the logic and the assumptions mm. of, of the early legal tradition. Um, and I wanted to put those two things into conversation, right? Put the 10th century and, and the 20th century, 21st century into conversation. Um, and I was very frustrated by the kind of Islam liberated women apologetic um, mm. that, that a lot of Muslims were um, presenting um, and equally frustrated with the sort of patriarchal, um, protective, protectionist uh, you know, well, well, of course, um, patriarchy done right is the only true Islamic tradition mm. that protects and respects women, um, which exists in a kind of funny tension with, no, no, the Quran and the Prophet Muhammad gave Muslim women all their rights, and so there's no need for patriarchy because Islam is against patriarchy. Um, and, and none of these really grappling with what is it that's there in the texts. Hmm. And that, when you mentioned Prophet Muhammad um, is a, perhaps an excellent way for us to 
leap right into some of that analysis. Um, I know that the undergrads at New College um, in Edinburgh will be quite familiar with the chapter of, uh, of the book that focuses upon the prophet's relationship with his wife Aisha. Um, so maybe we could use that as, as an example of just these various competing discourses and how people use claims to authority to, to negotiate sexual ethics. Sure. So, of course, um, for the pre-modern Muslim tradition, Aisha is an absolutely vital figure, right? She is the youngest of the Prophet's wives, many say his favorite wife, um, certainly after Khadija died, right, who was the wife of his younger years. And she's a scholar, and she's a contentious political figure, and certainly for the construction of Sunni identity and uh, Shi'i identity, she becomes a flashpoint in those debates over loyalty, over succession, over precedence, right? Mm. Um, and Chase Robinson, I'm going to paraphrase him now, um, says you know, that early Christians argued about Christology and early Muslims overed, argued over how you know, 7th century Muslims' behavior should be remembered, right? Um, So later Muslims are trying to construct their own um, authentic narratives, their own strategies of power by reference to these early Muslims. And so Aisha was absolutely central there. Which means that the ways in which she's remembered end up being very central. The texts that are giving people fits today Um, really are texts about her marriage in Mm. which she reports in the first person in Hadith narratives, right, narratives of prophetic tradition, that she was six or in other versions seven when the prophet married her and nine when the marriage was consummated. And there are other details sometimes given um, in these accounts. Now, it's useful to point out um, that this isn't something people were particularly worried about for Mm. a very long time. Um, and it's actually really unusual that any of his wives' age would be so um, important in texts about the marriage, but this is there mm. in the Hadith compilations that we have from the ninth century. And this is similar, the, the um, ages that are reported by early biographers who maybe sometimes go as high as 10. But really, it's, it's quite a young age mm. um, that's reported in these texts. And... Generally, over the centuries, Muslim biographers didn't particularly have any issue with this. Mm. Western biographers uh, didn't particularly have any issue with this. None of them took much notice of it um, until we get to just about um, 1700, when Humphrey Prideau, who is an Anglican clergyman, uh, writes a very nasty biography of Muhammad as actually part of his ongoing debate with um, Unitarian Christians. And he (laughs) says, oh, isn't this sort of amazing there in... Uh, Arabia, which is the same clime as India, you know, just like in all these other hot countries, right? The torrid zone, how women mature so quickly, right? And for him, Aisha's age of six and eight is an indication um, of something that is sort of exotic and erotic. What he's worried about, though, is that Muhammad is marrying her to make an allegiance with her father, which shows that he is making a power grab, right, Mm -hmm. in service of his fraudulent imposture. And basically, it only is really in the late 19th, early 20th century that people start to maybe wonder about this a little bit, Western biographers. 
Um, and by the late 20th century, it's making lots of people uncomfortable, um, including some Muslims. So mm. the Arabic translation of Washington Irving, for instance, who had thought this was all very romantic in the middle of the 19th century, in, um, in 1960, when it's being translated in Egypt, you know, the translator has a real note, right? And the original marriage has been demoted to a betrothal, and then the translator feels the need to sort of explain this. Um, but... By the time I'm writing Sexual Ethics and Islam, the context is different. And there are two very serious competing strains. There's a set of polemical accusations that Muhammad is a pedophile, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. the Reverend Jerry Vines um, has linked in, in an epithet is demon-possessed pedophile. Right, so he's linking a very old accusation against Muhammad uh, with a very new one, a sort of medicalized rhetoric of, um, but of evil, right? Yeah. Um, and then you start to have Muslim apologetics around this question, which say several things. Um, one is that, well, you know, things were different back then, right? And a version of that is what a number of secular, sympathetic Western academics have also said. Um, and then the other thing that you get is, well, these texts really aren't reliable on this point, right? Mm. Um, and the thing that I point out in Sexual Ethics and Islam is it's completely fine if you want to make that argument, um, but then it's a problem if you turn to those texts as absolutely true on everything else. Yeah. Um, the thing that was really striking for me after writing Sexual Ethics and Islam and moving on to the project uh, that became The Lives of Muhammad, which is an investigation of biographical texts specifically, um, is the ways in which so often in early texts, numbers have a particular kind of symbolic function and resonance. And while I don't know that six and seven or, you know, nine or 10 have the kind of symbolic resonance that say 40 does in the accounts of Khadija's age, um, it seems to me that there is plausibly, I don't want to say probably, and I don't think we can ever know um, with any kind of certainty if these are factually accurate, unless we're willing to simply say these texts are all factually accurate and we accept that. Um, it seems to me plausibly there's an argument to be made that the very low numbers given for her age are in service of praising her, actually, mm. of presenting her as a particularly pure figure, um, which is very important given that her chastity was impugned during her lifetime, right? Mm. Or at least according to um, texts, right? They represent this as something that was challenged. And so making her so young at marriage, emphasizing her virginity becomes a way of emphasizing her sexual purity. The other thing, it seems to me, is that it's possible that making her, say, nine when the marriage is consummated after the Hijra to Medina uh, is also a way of making her age low enough that she's indisputably born to Muslim parents, mm. right? So although, you know, virtually everybody in that first Muslim community would be a convert, according to pious narratives, um, by the time these Hadith texts are being compiled, having your parents already be Muslim, being born to Muslim parents is, is quite a status marker, right? It becomes important to have a genealogy of Muslim parentage going further back. Mm. So, I mean, we're already, time is running on here. <laughs> um, in terms of positioning, you're, so, you know, you're, you're a woman, a Western academic, a feminist. Um, 
and a right, Muslim. And a Muslim writing this book, um, discussing these topics. I mean, how 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 is it received? I can my stereotypical brain is going. This isn't going to be that well received in some circles. So. Um, how do you position yourself in that one respect? of the more flattering things um somebody once told me about the book was that her graduate advisor um who was also a muslim man um had suggested that she not read it because it would be dangerous and i thought oh <laughs> i must have done something right um but on the other hand i think that um my original intention for the book was not really um to have it end up where it's ended up, which was in the classroom, um, mm. mostly with students, uh, many of whom are not Muslim. Um, this was written originally very much as a book um, that was engaged in a kind of intra-Muslim conversation um, to address some frustrations I had with the way intra-Muslim conversations over issues of sexual ethics were going, I thought, in not particularly productive ways. Um, however, I'm not writing it only as a Muslim feminist. I'm writing it as a scholar of religious studies. And I know there are some people who don't think you can or should do both of those things. Um, but I have religious <laughs> studies training. And one of the things that that training enables me to do is to look at the ways in which particular traditions are being constructed, in which particular claims to authority are being made in particular ways. Yeah. And um, so, for instance, the chapter on female genital cutting in the book is really um, an extended meditation on what does the category Islamic and what do claims to the category Islamic or more pertinently un-Islamic tell us how useful are they um, and, and where might things that are useful in particular kinds of activist campaigns really break down if we're trying to look at them historically or from within religious studies or from within the world of scholarship at all. Mm. Yeah, and and I can remember um, the students being, you know, a little bit frustrated in the sense that so many different points of view were being considered, and all these, and, and not being necessarily condemned. And there was a whole, which is the right way. <laughs> I mean, look, answers are great. Um, I have a lot fewer answers than I have questions, um, and and if anything, in the expanded edition of the book. There are even more questions and even fewer answers. Um, but look, I, I don't think we're going to get better answers until we get better at asking the right questions. Um, exactly. And the, the right questions are very often, and, and not just for Muslims and not just about uh, Muslim questions, um, what's behind what we're being told? What's the evidence for this perspective? Where is this coming from? Um, and, and how much credit do we want to give it as an accurate representation of something in the world? Mm. And that leads me into sort of where I was wanting to, to get to with the interview. You've been a fantastic interviewee. Um, religious studies, I can, I can imagine that some will have maybe seen the title of this interview and thought, oh, that's area studies, Islamic studies, oh, I don't need to go there. Um, and, 
you know, everything that you've been saying, I think, has been illustrating why this is important for the broader study of religion. Um, but I just maybe wondered if you wanted to reflect on that, you know, from your perspective on, on the sort of in multiple different camps. Yeah, I mean, within the academic world of scholars who study Islam and Muslims, some come from area studies training, Middle East studies, Near Eastern studies, Islamic studies. Um, some are really trained to do philological work with old texts. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of good work that's being done with those texts. Um, and some are not trained uh, to work with those texts and instead are um, very historical, very presentist, very ethnographic um, in ways that I think sometimes make it difficult to understand the um, resonance of the appeal to the textual tradition that many Muslims take. Um, I'm very fortunate in that the American Academy of Religion brings together in the program units that study Islam um, quite a fabulous group of scholars who have expertise and training in a variety of different disciplines, uh, but who are committed, um, at least some of the time in their professional engagement to religious studies as a discipline, which is, of course, inherently interdisciplinary um, of necessity. And um, I think, you know, given that so many questions about Islam are really pivotal to questions that religious studies as a discipline is wrestling with, right, about the rights and roles and responsibilities of insiders and outsiders yep. with the formation of the category of religion. Look, it's not an accident that Orientalist, imperialist categories are um, very much at play here. Um, I think it's tremendously important that uh, Islamic studies be having conversations with folks in religious studies and vice versa, to the extent that you can even draw distinctions between them. Absolutely. And so on the topic of uh, conversations um, between different fields, um, you, your, your work's taken a different <laughs> turn of late. Um, yeah, your, a detour. Your, yeah, your latest book, Human in Death, Morality and Mortality in J.D. Robb's novels. And what's this got to do with uh, Islam? <laughs> well, uh, you know, at one level, nothing. Um, and at the other level, I suppose, everything. Um, I read these novels recreationally. It's, it's a series that's been ongoing for more than 20 years, um, published by Nora Roberts, who's a premier American author of popular romance um, under the pseudonym J.D. Robb. They're police procedurals set in New York circa 2060. Uh, and I read them. And I had things to say about them uh, and about the way that they deal with intimate relationships, about the way they deal with friendship, about the way they deal with work, especially women's work, uh, about the way they deal with violence, including police violence, um, about the way they deal with what it means to be a human being, about abilities and perfection and the idea of a post-human future. Um, and I think that to the extent that this book connects to uh, my other work, it's really around the questions of ethics, what it means to live a good, ethical, virtuous life 
uh, in connection with other human beings um, in a given set of circumstances. I trained as a historian before I moved into religious studies, um, and one of the things that uh, comes up again in this series, just like it comes up looking at 8th and 9th century legal texts and biographies, is that understanding the present um, is sometimes best done from a distance. Mm. And so looking comparatively at the past, looking at one possible imagined future, uh, can give us a new perspective on the world we're living in right now. Wonderful. And that also illustrates even more um, the importance um, of your work um, with Islamic texts and with contemporary Islam, with sexual ethics. And um, it's been fantastic that we've been having this conversation on International Women's Day. So I know this won't be going out for uh, another few months, but um, just to get that onto the recording um, from the Alba Leeds Centre. And um, I think we're going to have to draw that to a close there. But it's been fantastic speaking with you. And I wish you all the best for the lecture this evening, which will, if the recording goes okay, of the lecture we'll link to uh, from this page and everyone can see it and hear it in all its glory. Thanks. Thank you. That was certainly a provocative and very topical subject. And we are particularly glad to have more uh, coverage of Islam on the Religious Studies Project. It sometimes seems like we don't cover some of the world religions. I'm I'm making quote marks in the air there um, as much as we should. Um, And there's a few reasons for that. One is that very often definitional and theoretical issues are easier to show on the interesting sort of marginal cases. So things like new religions, indigenous religions, non-religion, stuff like that, give us uh, more opportunities to talk about, you know, how these relate to the idea of religion and and these kind of ideas. Um, But it's also because in some cases, and this is the case with... um, definitely with Islam, Hinduism and Buddhism to a degree and in a slightly different way with Christianity. But RS as a subject and particularly RS departments in universities are becoming more um, area studies orientated and our colleagues are perhaps more likely to be focused on their subject and less in you know, cross comparison and and broader theoretical issues than they were in the past. So it's actually quite difficult to get interviewees who are able to do the kind of cross cultural and theoretical issues that we're very interested here at the Religious Studies Project. So when we do get one, um, we're always very pleased. And I'm happy to say we do have some others on Islam coming up soon. Next week, however, we stay with the idea of sexual ethics with an interview on Tantra. Um, And that's an interview with Douglas R. Brooks. And it was recorded by Dan Gorman, one of our new interviewers. So do come back uh, uh, next week to hear that. Don't forget to come back for the Opportunities Digest on a Wednesday and the response on a Thursday, as always. I would also very much 
like to urge you to consider donating to our Patreon account. We've just set up a Patreon page and you can find that at www.patreon.com backslash Project RS or just search Project RS when you get to Patreon. We're using this to raise money, um, particularly to have the episodes transcribed um, for you as we're going along. This should make it uh, much easier for you to use these in your research and especially in your teaching, as well as making them uh, more easily searchable on the web. But also, um, if we get once we've got enough money to cover that, any other funds will go to continuing to develop the Religious Studies Project and keeping it free at point of use uh, for you and to develop in new directions in the future. Chris and I have been working on this project for over five years now and uh, completely for free. We're giving up a lot of our time and this is becoming more and more challenging as we, uh, as our careers develop and as the the projects get larger and larger. Um, we could hardly have believed the international scope of the project when we started it five years ago. And in order to continue to develop it, we need to to be working quite a lot behind the scenes to develop infrastructure and make new contacts internationally and um, setting up systems by which things work in a format that's never really been done before. So we would appreciate any support you would give us, even if, you know, one pound um, will go a long way to helping us out. You can set up one-off payments or a regular um, micro payment, if you like. I would especially encourage you to think about this if you've used it in your teaching. Perhaps your department might uh, be prepared to contribute a few pounds to the project given uh, that you may have used our material, uh, which was given free in your teaching. And that would help us keep that material free for students all around the world and members of the public and people who might be thinking about becoming students and might get interested in the subject through the Religious Studies Project and then um, sign up for a course at your department. So um, we'd be very grateful if you would uh, consider contributing. That's patreon.com backslash project rs other than that i'd like to say thanks for listening Mm -hmm.